talking book podcast i'm perry patterson and i write new adult romance and i am mk stably and i write cozy mysteries with a paranormal twist today on the talking book podcast we have claire bellero she is the author of espionage and enslavement in the revolution and she is coming to us live today from New York City. And Claire, I'm just going to do a little introduction about you. And I'm just going to read that introduction. And I'm also going to show the book because the book is not only perfect for Women's History Month, which is the month of March, it is also perfect for Black History Month. And the foreword of this book was written by Vanessa Williams. And we'll get to that in a few moments. First, I just want to give a little shout out to the book cover. It's great. Um, I've read the book and I loved it. It is wonderful. But I'm going to tell you just a little bit about Claire because she has a wonderful history and background um, that is fascinating. Claire Bellarue is the co-author of Espionage and Enslavement in the Revolution, the true story of Robert Townsend and Elizabeth, published in May of 2021. Claire is the founder of a nonprofit organization called Remember Lists with the mission to educate the community about the extraordinary life and times of an enslaved black woman from New York named Elizabeth. She formerly served as historian and director of education at Lissa's birthplace, Random Hall, Museum in Oyster Bay, New York on Long Island. She has been researching the Townsend family and those they enslaved for over 17 years, including curating a year-long exhibit on the Townsend Slave Bible in 2005 and 2015 during a research visit to New York Historical Society, she discovered what may be one of the earliest poems ever written by Juniper Hammond, America's first published African-American writer. She has developed educational programs on the subjects of slavery in New York and the American Revolution on Long Island and is creating a new curriculum to share Liz's story using primary documents from her research. Claire lives with her husband, Chris, in New York City. Welcome, Claire. Thank you for joining us live thank today. You. Yeah, thank, thank you. you so much for that introduction, for having me on your show. I love it. Well, we just have a few questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, yes, please. <laughs> one in particular, um, I wanted to know what made you pick this time in history or this event in history to do the research and write a book on? Well, as you heard in the introduction, I've actually been at this for 17 years now. Right. So uh, there were many times along that time period. It was published when it, when it was 16 years, because it was published last year. But there were a lot of times when I thought it was the right time, and then I would discover something else that I had to explore some more, or there were times when I thought 
that's it. I found everything I can know about Liz, and I'll never know what really happened to her. And I would almost give up. And then I would find one more thing. So it took a really long time for the book to actually be published, but I'm really glad because I think, you know, we talked about it being Black History Month and being Women's History Month, but this year, 2022, this is the year when we all need to hear this story. So it all worked out perfectly in the end. That's awesome. I love that. Um, Now, you partnered with Tiffany, is it Brooks, to write this book? Tiffany Yankee Brooks. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. How did you um, end up partnering partnering with her to do the book? And I am so fortunate to have such an amazing writer by my side. Tiffany is incredible, incredible writer. And we met when she was part of the writing team for a book about the Culper Spy Ring, Brian Kilmeade's book. George Washington's Secret Six. And I've read that she one. She was a writer and researcher yep, on that project. Mm-hmm. I was a historian that she reached out to um, multiple times for facts about Robert Townsend. And oh, so we connected cool. that way. That's I knew that I needed a great writer because I had never written a book before, even though I mm-hmm. love to write, still I knew there was, that was a real thing to right. be a book writer. You know, <laughs> you don't want to mess that up. And I was right. so dedicated to getting Liz's story right. I really needed a partner. And I remembered how much she knew about the Culper spy ring. She had just become a mother, and I really wanted a mother to be a co-author for Liz's story, a woman and a mother. And Tiffany said yes. <laughs> That's another big part of it. I approached other people who did not say yes, but I'm so glad that she did because she spent years helping me tell this story, you know, and now we're writing together again. We're writing a version of the book for fourth, fifth and sixth graders. That's also called remember lips. Oh, I was just going to ask you if you had any new research projects or anything like that coming up. It, you know, I've been researching more about Liz since the book came out, and I've actually discovered a few new things, which are really exciting. And those will be in the, the student version. Uh, and then we'll probably do a new edition of the book that can include some of these new discoveries. But um, that's what I'm working on now, because um, when you learn about slavery and the Revolutionary War in your elementary school and middle school years, Mm-hmm. I want kids to learn it right. Yeah. You know? I right. I want Black History Day to be a one month or a one day when they're going to learn about our, our country's founding and the contributions mm-hmm. of people like Liz. I want it to be through mm-hmm. the whole grade. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I know Perry has a bunch of questions for you, too. I also wanted to show you my espionage candle. I don't have it burning right now, but nice. it was making noise. But it is 729, which is the code number for Satak at New York, which Benjamin Talmadge gave um, when he was giving out code numbers for words and for people. Um, and I bought that from Three Village Historical Society in Satak. Well, I didn't. I ordered it online. But um, I have been to Setauket to do the actual Culper Spy Ring tour, and I did a private tour with Margot Asiri um, back in June. And I had um, originally gotten interested in Washington spies 
because my DAR chapter that I'm a member of was actually reading historical fiction. And we were reading a book called 355, which is, of course, fiction. And as I'm reading that book for my DAR chapter, I'm also watching Turn at the same time. And so I'm watching Turn. I'm becoming more and more engrossed in the story, almost to the point of being obsessed with it, to the point where I've got to go to Setauk at Long Island and I've got to take this tour. And we Uh went. And since then, I have read everything I can get my hands on that has anything to do with Washington spies and the Culper spy ring. And I kind of feel like I've become almost a little bit of a scholar or an expert. And I wanted to, and when I was in Oyster Bay in August, um, I went to Raymond Hall and I toured it. And of course I was just, everything about that museum and that in his home was fantastic. So I want to talk a little bit about, you used to live in Oyster Bay, Long Island. You were the director for that particular museum. And did you become the director because you were interested in research on lists or were you the director and then you became interested in the research on Elizabeth? So I was the director of education, but I wasn't the director of the museum. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, I was brought in as the director of education because of my research Okay. that family and Liz, which had started many years before. So when I first started working there, just as a part-time guy, uh, it was because I did a audio tour for them. I produced a audio tour for the museum. And at that time, I got interested in this one artifact that they had, this jug. And I did a paper on that jug and a lecture in Europe because it was so interesting. And I kind of thought, you know, that was neat. That was fun to do historical research. But then the museum purchased this Bible that you mentioned in your introduction. Prior to the purchase of this Bible, no one knew that there was any slavery at that site. There was so much else to talk about there. The the culprits firing, the father as a patriot, the British uh, quartering themselves in the house. Mm -hmm. And there was a mistaken belief that had persisted in a lot of books, maybe books you read, and in turn, that the family were Quakers, but they weren't. They were not Quakers at all. Right. And your book, your book is the only book I have found that claims that they were not Quakers, but that there were a lot of Quakers in Oyster Bay, maybe even with the same last name. But I, yours is the only book that actually clearly states that their records were found on the Baptist registry and maybe not Robert Townsend himself, but maybe even Elizabeth was found on the records of being at that church uh, listed in the directory. It's a big family mm-hmm. group. I yeah. mean, just like uh, there are large families and not everyone in the family has the same faith community, right? Like, you could have an aunt that might be one thing and an uncle that might be another and a cousin that might be something else. Right. Um, The idea that this family were Quakers for all time really is a confusion that started back in the 1600s. Okay. When the earliest Townsends to come to Oyster Bay, these three brothers, were not Quakers themselves, but they were so Mm -hmm. helpful to Quakers who were being uh, persecuted by Stuyvesant that that Quaker connection was made at that early time 
And it just kind of spilled forward, kind of with the telephone game sort of from. But you know, most books about the cult perspiring are incorrect. Almost all of them. Yep. The only one that I would really say is a standout correct book is Bill Blyer's book. I have his. I believe I have it. Very, very consistent about being truthful about what is a true thing and what is a legend. There are a lot of legends and they're a lot of fun to talk about, um, but they're not the same as the truth. Right. I tried in my book to be very transparent about when something is something that's probable or possible and when it's really provable. Right. Okay. The whole Anna Anna Strong thing with the clothesline, it's a wonderful story and it's a lot of fun to think about, but there's actually no proof that it ever happened. It's a modern era legend that only cropped up in the 1930s for the first time. And it actually isn't supported by the method of the cult respiring. That isn't actually how they operate. So for a lot of those reasons, I don't include that in my book. Right. And that's another whole, that's another whole story, um, which is, yeah, it's a wonderful story. And um, I I know that the Strong family uh, loves that portion of the history of it. Um, I have been, obviously, like I said, I was on the tour with Margot. Um, but when you had, how did you connect with Vanessa Williams? Vanessa Williams, former Miss America from 19, I believe, 84. Um, how did you connect with Vanessa Williams on writing the um, forward? And I know that it says in the forward that you guys met at an event in Oyster Bay and Did you ever find a family connection that might have connected her to Liz, or is it just family from Oyster Bay that she has connections with that go back to the 1600s? We haven't found a, we can't know about genetic connections with Elizabeth because she has no last name. So unfortunately, people who are only a first name, it's, it's very hard to trace them going forward. There are African-Americans with the last name Townsend who can trace their ancestors back to the era of slavery. And Vanessa Williams, as far as she can see, is not related to them either. But she is, um, she does have ancestors that were from Oyster Bay who were members of early families of Oyster Bay. The, um, and they can trace their line back to the time of slavery. So she isn't just a person who cares about Liz and is interested in helping get Liz's story out. Her background is from the same town and leading back to the time of slavery there. So someone who is a blood relative of Vanessa Williams might have walked right along the street with Liz. Right. They would have known each other. Some of her ancestors would have probably known each other. It was a very small community. Right. It still is. Um, And so I was just very fortunate to meet her. She was in Oyster Bay to dedicate a historic uh, black cemetery um, in the town or in the outskirts of the town. And um, anybody who reads my book, when you read about chapter one, this is an area called Pine Hollow. And it uh, figures largely in the history of a whole community of free black people who live in Oyster Bay. The first slave freed anywhere on Long Island lived in that area, Pine Hollow, when he was free. 
a man named Tom Gall. And he was enslaved on the same property where many years later, Liss would live as a slave. Raynham Hall, that land. Wow. Right. It's a wonderful museum. How many years were you the director of education at Raynham Hall in Oyster Bay? I guess maybe four or five. Okay. And yep. so when you... You lived there in Oyster Bay while you were working there. Now you live in New York City, um, yeah. and but you're still working on writing some new material for fourth graders. Um, and tell us a little about a bit, a little bit about your nonprofit and how that is going to work. How people can get involved in your nonprofit and how going forward um, you see that in the future for for that particular yeah. organization. It's exciting to talk to you about this because really you're one of the first interviewers that I've been able to talk to this to you to about this because it just was formed literally just this month it was uh, became a legal entity and we're still going through some paperwork to become a 501c3 and start to accept donations so right now it's more about awareness but Liz I consider Liz to be a new founding figure We've heard a lot about founding fathers in the mm -hmm. past, and these are the people who we think of when we think of the founding of America. But right. I'd like to expand that and start to call them founding figures and count Liz as one of those people. She and her story are so unique. It is so unusual to know about the life of a woman of color in America's founding period. Not just to know about one moment in a life, but to know about an arc of a life story. And hers is so interconnected with the historic figures and events that you already know from learning about them in school. So Liz can not only tell her own story through this foundation, but you can learn about America's founding and include all those members of people of color who have been excluded. Mm -hmm. She can be their representative and you can see America's founding through her eyes. And begin to populate your imagination with people of color because it was about 16% of the population of New York who mm -hmm. were enslaved people of color. And so that's a lot of people that we've just been erasing from the story. Right. Okay. So my nonprofit will be working with schools. Okay. We'll be publishing this student book and working on curriculum and getting some really creative activities going for kids so that they can uh, really begin to interact with real primary documents and begin to understand their country's founding in a new way. That sounds awesome. Um, in the story, we know that Elizabeth was in the home when Colonel James Simcoe of the Queens Rangers had occupied the Townsend home. And we know that Robert Townsend was already in Manhattan running his store, which might've been across the street from Rivington's paper, the Gazette and the British coffee house where he was able it to get information. So while she was in the home and Colonel Simcoe had occupied it, um, he had a meeting with John Andre. And of course, John Andre was head of the espionage uh, leadership for the British. And John Andre, yeah, Andre actually stayed in the house for a okay. couple of weeks. He was okay. there on a little mini vacation with Simcoe. And so she was able to overhear a lot of what was going on. And of course, John Andre was negotiating um, with. Yes. Yeah, okay. He started negotiating with Benedict Arnold. Yeah. Okay. This is he... where some of the history books get wrong. 
Right. 78 over the winter to 79. Uh-huh. It was in that 79 springtime when Andre came to stay for a few weeks. Okay. And when Andre left the house in the spring, early right. summer of 79, that was when he started talking to Benedict Arnold for the first time. But the treason plot itself wasn't until a whole year later in the fall of 1780. Right. So she okay. got to know Stinko really well, and then he helped her escape. Right. And, and she met Andre, too. Right. And that's the that's the question. We don't know if was she spying on them and giving information to possibly Robert Townsend or was she or okay, or do you think she was a Patriot spy? What is your what are your thoughts or your feelings about her escaping and leaving with them? Because she kind of disappears for a while. Um, and then somehow ends up, I remember she ends up being sold to someone in, uh, South Carolina, I believe. After the war. Yeah. During the time when Robert was a spy, mm-hmm. she escapes with Simcoe. Right. And Robert wrote to his father a very unusual letter where he said, I know where the Queens Rangers are. Now they were on a secret mission, so he shouldn't have known where they were. And I know that Liz has okay. escaped. And I'm following them. I'm, I'm up above the tip of Manhattan. I might even talk to some of the Queens Rangers officers and ask them about Liz and where she might be. Then he turns his, his whole point of view around in this short letter and says, but dad, don't think you're going to get her back. You'll never see her again. Don't even look for her. Don't even try to get her back. In fact, all that money that she is worth, she was his father's property. Write it off. Write it off with all the other things the British took from you, okay? Then at the end of that letter, he makes a point of saying, I am surprised that Colonel Simcoe would permit her to go. He certainly must have known it when they left Oyster Bay. I am, dear sir, your dutiful son, Robert Townsend. And so this almost seems like a letter that was created to hang on to in case they needed to point the blame at Simcoe and could bring this letter out later on. It also seems to contradict itself in a lot of ways. And I'd like to just add to that another layer. They never sought Liz as a runaway. And that was the typical thing to do. When your enslaved person who was very valuable to you would run away, you would place an ad in the paper. Now, they were very sophisticated merchants, the Townsends. They placed ads in the paper for their business all the time. So that wasn't an uncommon thing for them to do. But they never put a runaway slave ad for her. Mm-hmm. Now, later, Robert, who said to his dad, you'll never get her back again, he buys things for her and makes a note of it in his ledger. Two occasions, he buys small things for Liz and writes down that he does so in his ledger book. After the war, she came to him and said, I don't want to evacuate with the British. Will you buy me back? Will you buy me back again? Now, he had already started to move away from slavery as something he believed in. He had hired a white maid to keep his household for him and a paid white person. But he took her in. She was about three months pregnant at the time. She gave birth in his bachelor pad in Manhattan on Peck Slip, a place he shared with his brother and cousin. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a pretty unusual situation, you know? But you're right. Something else bad happened to her. He resold Liz and her baby son, who was about six months old after the war, to a widow who they all knew. 
a woman named Anne Sharwin, who had recently become a widow. She knew Liz already, and Liz agreed to be sold into her household. Robert made a special deal with this widow. If you ever want to leave Manhattan, or you ever want to sell Liz and her son, Harry, contact me, and I will buy them. I will buy them back at the same price. But it didn't work out that way. He wasn't paying attention. That woman got remarried, and her new husband, this wealthy merchant, did something to Liz in the early days of the marriage, something that caused the whole marriage to collapse. A derangement and separation happened in the marriage. The wife somehow didn't retain ownership of Liz and her son. The new husband did. And out of spite or greed, he sold Liz south to Charleston and didn't send her baby with her. He kept two-year-old Harry in Manhattan. He enslaved other people, so Harry was probably cared for by other slaves in his household. But Liz was separated and had no idea how she was ever going to be reunited with him. And sold south to a terrible place, enslaved by a really horrible, violent man. And uh, that's another huge part of the story, the man that enslaved her in Charleston. Because he was known to history. He was the instigator of the Boston Massacre of 1770. By strange coincidence, we already knew about this guy in history. But after the war, he was in Charleston, and he was, like I said, a violent man who had a lot of bad things that he did in his life. And um, one of those was enslaving List for a couple of years. And, yeah, and the good news is that Robert did eventually get both her son and Elizabeth back to his home in Oyster Bay. And we think that she did live out her life there um, in Oyster Bay. And we think she... I don't know where she lived out her life, but I do believe she became a free person. I just don't have evidence to know if she moved or lived elsewhere. Right, okay. um, One of the things I found out that isn't in the book, uh, in the book, I believe that I found evidence of her living as a free person in 1790, but not having her official paperwork at that time. But now I found official paperwork. So in 1803, she was... Uh, officially legally free, what's called a manumission, she and her sister, Hannah, were freed on the same day in 1803 in Oyster Bay. Okay. And did it have anything to do with like Robert Townsend? Was there any signatures by Robert Townsend or the Townsend family during? This was the interesting thing that I, that I learned through this document um, that I believe that Elizabeth and Hannah were co-owned not just by Robert's father, but also by his brother, who lived in the next town, Jericho, who was a physician. I believe that they both owned her together, which wasn't so unusual. Their father had given all four sons one quarter of a man in his will. This person named Will, in their father's will, was split four ways between the four sons. But the mother got to have use of that slave during her lifetime. The dad had died young, so that lifetime was 30 years. The mother lived 30 more years. And during that time, I believe this man, Will, had a family and offspring. So Elizabeth and Hannah may have been his children or even grandchildren. And so they also were split up in amongst family members. 
So imagine the barrier to becoming free if you're owned by several people or several people's estate. Wow. By the time Liz and her sister were free, both those men, Robert's father and his uncle, had, they both died. So now it was their children that owned these little bits and pieces of, the, of these human beings. Right, and the people who freed her were the uncle's remaining heirs, uh, a son and a son-in-law. They were the ones on the signatures of that. Okay. The last two that were living. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And, um, of course, we know that Robert Townsend was, the culprit spying all of them that were involved were so secretive as to their missions and what they were doing that no one suspected anything and robert townsend of course never said a word he never married um and they found a a red um british officer's jacket hanging i think in his closet he had been a sentry and he would post outside of um one of the officers homes so he he played the whole part of being a tory yeah, really I, really not well just, uh, not just playing a part in a small way he helped to organize and joined a British volunteer company in Manhattan. So think of it as like a neighborhood watch group where private citizens are going to do little extra jobs for the British to show how loyal they are. And the and entire the yeah. was standing guard mm -hmm. outside British headquarters at one Broadway. This is a corner of Manhattan you can visit. It's right by... Um, you know, all of the historic areas in, of downtown. And uh, yeah, so I, he would stand guard in a red coat. Now imagine if Liz was enslaved by British officers inside British headquarters or who were visiting there. Would have been pretty easy for her to walk outside and tell him what she had just heard. Fascinating. And no one, and that's the one thing that was so, that's why the Culper Spiring was so successful. They they never let on to their family father and this isn't well told in the history books either he was a member of the new york provincial congress and he knew washington personally he knew john jay personally he actually knew our top long island general who was the president of our congress general nathaniel woodhull abraham right. woodhull's cousin and Robert Townsend rented a room from Abraham Woodhull's sister in Manhattan. So in the early days of the Culper spy ring, it was easy for Abraham Woodhull to go visit his sister and then just knock on Robert's door and get all the intelligence. But um, Abraham Woodhull was getting stopped by the British too frequently, going back and forth across Long Island. Mm -hmm. And that's why Robert was um, really asked to become lead spy. And Lead spy is what he really should be considered because Manhattan was the source of the intelligence. Setauket was only important because it was so far away from Manhattan, so far in the boonies and out in the middle of nowhere. That wasn't, Turn made it seem like that was the, the headquarters, the beehive of everything. Actually, the Queens Rangers did not go to Setauket. They did not encamp there. But they didn't three times in Oyster Bay and every time Simcoe stayed at the Townsend's house. So that was just okay. wrong turn. But didn't um, Simcoe go in search of Abraham Woodhall? And yeah, he one time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Because he was suspicious. On one occasion, 
we got information that there was a spy in Setauket named Woodhull. Right. Now, very lucky for Abraham. He was in Manhattan. At that time, when he was in Manhattan recruiting mm -hmm. Robert mm -hmm. and convincing Robert, who I think had been his informant, to take over the job as lead spy. So just coincidentally, right when Simcoe went to look for a Woodhull, the real Woodhull was talking to Robert in the city. And so mm -hmm. Simcoe interrogated his father instead and beat him up, trying to get the information mm -hmm. out of it. His, his intelligence was so strong that this man Woodhull was a spy. He was sure of it. And so he did. He interrogated him and he beat him up. And the father didn't know his son was a spy, so he didn't admit it. And, um, and Simcoe went away and didn't catch Abraham Woodhull. Robert thought he was going to get caught, especially when Benedict Arnold came to Manhattan. Right, uh, because Benedict, sure yeah, Benedict Arnold was definitely aware of spies in Manhattan at the time. So there was a lot, there was a lot of, he was trying to find them. And I, I think he was even one of them that was a, um, the, uh, tailor, um, Hercules Mulligan. So, yeah. He let go eventually, but he was initially arrested by, uh, Benedict Arnold. And Robert even says in one of his spy letters that he, he knew many of the people. He was close to many of the people who got arrested. So what he did was he left town. He left Manhattan for about three months. Mm -hmm. And he just went into hiding. And when he came mm -hmm. back, he dissolved his business partnership and moved his whole store from kind of the center of lower Manhattan to way off on the edge of Peck Slip near South Street Seaport. And no more communicating in letters after that. No more ads in the newspaper after that. But Liz knew where he was because that's where she went to ask him for help at the end of the war. And so right when right. he became lead spy, that's when Woodhull wrote this one letter where he mentions 355. He doesn't say that there's a person who's joined the spy ring called 355. He doesn't say this is a, a woman, a lady, who's going to be with them for all time, who is a full-fledged member. He just says with her assistance. Mm -hmm she'll outwit them all. But the timing of it does perfectly line up to when Elizabeth came to Manhattan. And if she was enslaved by a high-ranking officer and Robert had contact with her, she would have a good way of outwitting the British mm -hmm. by being an enslaved person, by being, in essence, invisible. Right. right. I have a three... So I, I would offer that as a very good probability or possibility, mm -hmm. but it's not mm -hmm. provable because I right. didn't write down who Right. I have a 355 magnet on my car. <laughs> but yeah, I know it's very controversial and everybody talks about who is three who is agent 355. I know. It's it's always it's always um a topic of interesting. I think that we have to we have to make space. Right? We have to make space in our imagination and in our thoughts for people of color to be part of our story. So if we're going to say that we can't know for sure, but if we have a person who's a woman of color who's got some great facts that we do know that line up well, I'd just like to push her to the top of the list. Right. Let's get her up there at the top. Right. Instead of uh, having a bunch of people up there who are rich or super privileged. I mean, let's make room for a, a story of a person that really had to fight every day for their freedom. 
Yes. And your passion for the research and for just championing, championing this program and for, and for lists is absolutely wonderful. So we applaud you yeah. for doing absolutely. that. And we appreciate you for doing that because when more people, you know, have a passion and an ability to be able to share with others information that they wouldn't necessarily know. It is absolutely wonderful. Your book is my favorite book for um, the American uh, Revolution, Culperspiring story. Um, it is absolutely fabulous. And I am always telling people about it. I'm like, this is the best book. If you want to read about the Culperspiring, if you want to read about Long Island in the British occupation in New York during the American Revolution, this is a fantastic book because you have done so many years of research um, to be able to put this together and are still doing research to this hey, day. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of footnotes in the back of that book, right? Like the whole back section is nothing but footnotes. I try to be really intentional and to prove what I say or to let the reader know mm -hmm. when I'm um, making a connection. You and I mean? did mm -hmm. you see all of, um, I know that Washington kept about, I believe there's 190 letters um, that Washington kept in his possession that had to do with the Culper spy ring, even though the Culper spy. So I identified 193, maybe 194 of them. And, and what I did as a researcher was I um, made a, a record of every one of them. And then as, as you look at the image of the letter itself, I made a transcription so that I can read through the Culper letters in chronological order. And that's another, you know, thing that we may publish through the foundation is the Culper spy letters in order transcribed so that okay. other people can just read them. Right. Because right. if you look at Culper spy ring and you're not reading the Culper spy letters, you're missing the whole thing. This isn't a story about 20 million people all sneaking around. This is a story about two people, Culper Jr., Culper Sr., two men who both went by the name Culper, writing letters back and forth and trying to get them around to Washington through couriers. So there are couriers moving letters, getting them across the water, and then taking them to Washington. But if you want to talk about who the Culper spies are, there's only two junior and senior that's it <laughs> and everybody else in between is a career well but benjamin talmage was kind of kind of heading that program up though oh yeah mm -hmm. he's yeah. kind of aspiring he's directing everybody mm -hmm. right right but he's not he's writing letters back to the culper spies washington is writing letters back to them but there are only two spies on the british side of things junior and senior Everybody else is moving their letters around. They're the authors of the letters. Now, mm -hmm. there was one other other man who wrote some letters too. His code name was SG. He wrote one or two. Um, Colonel Floyd had some letters written to him by Robert in invisible ink. Mm -hmm. Robert's message was getting around that way. Um, Benjamin Talmadge. Uh, would write letters and Caleb Brewster would write some letters, right? Caleb Brewster was actually authoring his own intelligence letters, but he wasn't living behind enemy lines the way Culper Jr. and Culper Sr. were. So there were people who were living on the American side who were communicating back and forth 
And Caleb Brewster just can't, I can't talk enough about him. He was such an amazingly brave person. Yes, he was one of the ones who never hid his name. He 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 kept his name. He never hid his name. He never changed his name. He was like, I'm you know, and so he's. So I have one question about how did you find the letters that Washington? Where do you go for those kind of documents to read them? So there's a few that are privately kept by collections that aren't the Library of Congress, just a few. But the greater body of them are online with the Library of Congress. This is the craziest problem you'll ever hear, but it's true. When you search Library of Congress, you have to use their code names. How difficult is that? So if you want to see Culper spy letters, by Benjamin Talmadge, you have to know. John Bolton. His code name is? What is John it? Bolton. John Bolton, yes. 721. You can't look for Robert Townsend, you'll, you won't get a thing. You can't get a single letter under Abraham Woodhull. You'll uh-huh. have to look for Samuel Culper. Uh, yeah, and he was 722, I think. Um, and Washington was 711. I want to publish all the letters mm-hmm. in sequence mm-hmm. because Washington wrote a lot of letters. And if you just transcription on another site. That's another reason why I would really like to do this um, project with getting the complete letters out. And every once in a while, a new one crops up. Last summer um, on Long Island, they found another one that had been in the ownership of a museum, Free Village, but they just didn't know they had it. It was in their collection since the 1950s. And literally during COVID, they were just tidying up and trying to make sure all their records were under control. They were like, what? It had code numbers in it. It was a lot of fun. Um, awesome. I got to be uh, part of the group of historians that they reached out to to help them interpret it. So that was, it's the only Culper spy letter written to Robert. Now you know why that is. Because <laughs> Robert destroyed them all. Right. He destroyed every letter that he got. Because he didn't want anybody to find them on him. Exactly. Right, this one didn't get to him. This one happened when there was a meeting that was scheduled that he did not attend. He was supposed to show up for a secret meeting and he didn't show up. So the letter went back. That's why that one still exists. Wow. Wow. So Mandy needs to probably watch Turn on Netflix now so she can kind of get a little bit of, I know you're, I know, but, but it's so fun. I know, I know it's not exactly accurate. I understand. I understand it's not exactly accurate. It's been I know it's Hollywood up and all that stuff, but oh, and but the guy that plays, Simcoe, I, I know, I know, I know, I know, right, except he beat up Abraham Woodhall's feather, yeah. yeah, but Colonel John Grave Simcoe literally, um, was responsible. You froze. <laughs> you, you're frozen for just a few seconds. I don't know. But anyway, turn is very Hollywooded up, but it's still fantastic. Wait, here I am. You can hear me? Oh, gosh. 
I, well, I can see you, but you're frozen. We, but that's okay because we can still hear you. And I want, I do want to talk about, um, the painting. I want to talk, tell us about the painting behind you. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that because that is on the cover of your book. of lips. That's what I thought. An enslaved person would not have been um, painted in a portrait, unfortunately. Right. And that's a big problem because we're so visual. We really want to see a person in a photograph or in film footage or even in a painting where it's really hard for us to make that, that mental connection. Right. And so I worked with a wonderful young artist from Colorado named Lindsay Levine. I talked to her extensively about what I believe is true about Liz and showed her my research. And she painted this painting for me so that I could create a visual for people. So I believe that Liz was about 17 when she escaped. And I, I believe she really had a lot of personal charisma and possibly beauty. She was a very confident person. She was a great um it says she was fond of company and that she wasn't afraid to talk to British officers. So she had a lot of personal power. She showed a lot of agency in her life to try to take her future by the, you know, mm -hmm. by the horns, try to drive her future and, and gain her own freedom. So she must've been a very brave person yeah, and a very smart person too. And so this, this is definitely just an artist's interpretation but um, we need that. We need to have something to put in our imagination. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I'm a very visual, you know, person. And I, I love that painting. Well, I... I do. And, and I like having it over my shoulder when I'm giving an interview because I, I don't want people to focus on me. Right. I'm not the story. Right. She is. Well, we cannot praise your book enough. Espionage and Enslavement by Claire Bellaru and your co-writer, Tiffany Brooks. Yucky Brooks. Yucky Brooks is the co-author. And we cannot praise your research enough and your passion for just bringing this history to life for everyone. We have probably run over our time, but there is so, so much to talk about so with this much. topic. So much history. And honestly, and I get it. I, I get it. I'm a history buff myself. I love, especially the American revolution history. Um, my ancestors, um, helped found the state of New Jersey. So I'm a member of the, the Senate of the founders of New Jersey. Um, they came over in the 1600s. I am fascinated with it. And I may have mentioned, I'm trying to write a historical fiction, uh, on the life of Benjamin Talmadge and the Culper spy ring which will be titled Leader of Liberty, A Tale of Benjamin Talmadge and the Culper Spiring. Um, so I want to pick your brain so much more and I want to do it in person. And I know I've mentioned this. I want to take you to lunch at uh, Francis Tavern on Pearl Street in Manhattan, where Washington and his commanders met as soon as the British left in November of 18. Um, eight, uh, 1783, excuse me, 1783. They met there. He had his last meeting with his officers there. 
it's a fantastic historical site and there's a museum on the second floor. So I and am planning from Hanover Square, right where okay. Robert was, and Rivington, so. Have you done, have you done any tours, like with Mrs. Q? Have you done a tour with Mrs. Q? Do you, she's got. I've done a tour with Mrs. Q, but I'm actually developing a tour as part of my um, project with Remember List to take members of the public who love the book and walk you all around lower Manhattan and show you 10 or 15 different locations that are key locations from her story. Perfect. So maybe when you come to visit, it will be in the summer or a yeah. time that's warm enough for us to oh, walk around. Oh, definitely. I'm from, we're from Georgia. MK and I are from Georgia. We're, we live north of Atlanta and definitely we are all about coming in the summer. Believe me. Um, because we're not used to anything else, but I, I do want to ask you, will you be a beta reader for when I get that book ready? Will you beta read it? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Count me in. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, we have had a wonderful time talking with you. We need yeah, thank it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is great. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you to our listeners. We will be back in touch with you. Claire Bellero, thank you so much. Espionage and Enslavement, excellent book, nonfiction, so much research went into it. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for joining us live Thank today. You. Thank Bye. you. Bye.